You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. October 30th, 1985. The impossible happens once to each of us. For me, it was near Halloween in 1985 at my home in Patchen Place. Even New Yorkers find it hard to spot a little alley west of Sixth Avenue where the city tilts drunkenly into an 18th century pattern, allowing for such fanciful moments as West 4th crossing West 8th and Waverly Place crossing itself. There is West 12th and Little West 12th, There is Greenwich Street and Greenwich Avenue, the last of which takes a diagonal route along the old Indian Trail. If any ghosts still walk there carrying their corn, no one sees them, or perhaps they are unrecognizable among the freaks and tourists out at all hours, drunk and laughing by my doorstep. They say the tourists are ruining everything. They say they have always said that. But I will tell you. Stand on West 10th where it meets 6th Avenue, in the turreted shadow of the old Jefferson Market Courthouse with its tall tower. Turn until you see a set of iron gates, so easy to miss. Peer through the bars and there, no more than half a city block lined with thin maples, dead-ending half a dozen doorways down, nothing glamorous, just a little broken alley of brick three-story apartment buildings built long ago to house the Basque waiters at the Brevort. And there, at the end, on the right, just past the last tree, our door. Scrape your shoes on the old shoe brush embedded in the concrete. Walk through the green front door, and you might turn left to knock on my Aunt Ruth's apartment, or walk upstairs and knock on mine. And at the turn of the staircase, you might stop and read the heights of two children, mine in red grease pencil, and high above in blue, that of my twin brother Felix. Patch in place, the gates locked and painted black, the houses crouched in solitude. The ivy growing, torn down, growing again, the stones cracked and weedy. Not even a borough president would look left on his hurrying way to dinner. Who would ever guess, behind the gates, the doors, the ivy, where only a child would look? As you know, that is how magic works. It takes the least likely of us, without foreshadowing, at the hour of its own choosing. It makes a thimble rig of time, and this is exactly how. One Thursday morning, I woke up in another world. Andrew Sean Greer is the author of the novels The Story of a Marriage, The Confessions of Max Tivoli, and The Path of Minor Planets, and a collection of short stories titled How It Was for Me. His new novel is The Impossible Lives of Greta Wells. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. This is such a delightful novel, and I think what I like most about it is the way that you've created this narrative that weaves in and out of itself. Talk about making the decision to play with time in the way you did. Well, the first idea I had for the book was a long time ago. After I wrote The Confessions of Max Tivoli, I was interested in seeing if I could write a story that took place in three, exactly the same story, setting and characters, but just set in three different time periods and see how the story would change. And I tried writing that book, and it was in three separate parts. And it was really boring because you'd have to read the same. It's like hearing, you know, your your partner tell the same joke at a party over and over and over. It was just really boring. 
So I actually put it away. I abandoned the book. And it wasn't until I was partway through Story of a Marriage that it occurred to me that if I actually just had a narrator who was herself moving every day into one of these other worlds, these other stories, and sort of in a panic trying to make her way through them and fake her way through this other life, that it would be much more fun for me. You know, because then you're talking about a consciousness and not just an experiment. One of the things I think that makes this book so much fun is seeing the same set of characters play against the three different uh, time periods. And you made some interesting choices with the time periods, I thought. So did you do that? Did you uh, cling to the time periods of your first iteration or did you have to go back and tweeze that? And did you, in fact, have to maybe tweeze it through the book? What did you find interesting about it? I'm curious. Well, I, I just thought that the the way the time periods, uh, they're not what I would have expected. I would have expected one to be set solidly in the present. Right. And, and, and there's there's a reason for that. I think that it's, it's really um, a fantastically crafted reason, and it's like this extra gift that you get at the end of the novel. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. It is, I mean, one of the funny things, it's not exactly as you've just heard a, a time travel novel, but... It, it's normal to set it at the in the present and then go to the past in some way. And it occurred to me in researching New York that if I started off in 1985, I would get an extra time period at no extra cost. You know, <laughs> so I I just I, I went with that. That was the fun of it. And then it also it it makes a difference in the book, actually, that it's not the present. And those time periods I picked, I didn't even know why. You know, I started off planning the book, and I thought, I want something around 1918. I'd been fascinated by that time period in U.S. history because it seemed oddly freewheeling for being so far in the past. And I'd written a book about the 50s. I diligently want to avoid the 60s. It's been covered thoroughly. And something about, I wanted 30s, 40s, I knew. But once I started plotting out the book, I realized if she's moving between these worlds, she can watch World War I end, and then two weeks later can watch World War II begin. And that that, the, the sort of bittersweet feeling of seeing war come and go so close to each other with the same enemy would, would be something only she could recognize. Uh, that's one of the other great joys of this book. This book is a book that works upon the infinite power of perfect hindsight. Yeah, it's she knows she's this Cassandra, right? She knows exactly what's going to happen. But she, you know, unlike a lot of other characters in fiction that move to a different time and they want to sell, sell short on stock or invest in GE or something, she she's really about her own personal life and knowing she knows something about history and how it's going to go. But she knows more than that. She knows these people. And she knows the kind of things they have done in other versions of their life and what they are capable of. And so it, it became, when I wrote it, much less about being in the historical moment and more about being with the people, being, what the histor- being with what the historical moment had made these people into. It's, it's really, in many ways, a novel of, uh, of nature versus nurture. Right. They are the, that was the sort of the interesting thing of me. I, I started writing and I thought, which characters are going to be 
just blown by the winds of, of that era and which characters are going to be exactly the same in every time. Because we all like to think we'd be exactly the same. But, um, but indeed, we, we aren't. I mean, if I look at photographs of myself from 20 years ago, I can't believe I was wearing that. You know, it's, I'm clearly <laughs> in the thrall of some very bad choices forced by my own era. But I know people who are always themselves, you know, and I imagine they'd be the same at any time, and that they would suffer for it. You know, what's nice about this novel, too, is that it has a very nice uh, setup in that it's a little bit science fictional. You give us just enough hand-waving to make it seem plausible, but not so much that we ever have to overly think about it. You occupy this kind of era, area of um, fairy tale and... More precisely, I think the Twilight Zone kind of story, and I think the Twilight Zone stories were in many ways the fairy tales for the 20th century, and this is a perfect example of that. I'd like you to talk about just creating the logic between the time switches and how much of that came out of any kind of science reading you did or how much of it just said, I want to do this, I'll wave my hands and make it happen. I, I have to tell you, it is so great to hear you say that because that... I hate to say anything was difficult in writing the book because I don't want readers to ever notice the hard parts. You work so hard to make them. That was the hardest part because I, I mean, I do think that we somehow we have this genre science fiction or fantasy that forces things into a different category when in the past you look at novels like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and um, it just, you just get the premise early and no one questioned what's in that formula. How did he do it? How does, you know... And so I wanted to write a book that, like The Twilight Zone, you get the idea early on, and then it's sort of a thought experiment. What what does that lead to next? You know, that this sort of magical moment is just the opportunity to tell a different kind of story. And for me, those fairy tales or science fiction books that touch on something about the human condition, that open up a new door to it that a realistic story couldn't, um, they were my favorites. So I actually asked a couple authors who've dabbled in this. Uh, Karen Joy Fowler is just an amazing writer. She has a new book out, too. Mm-hmm. We um, we are all, all completely, completely beside ourselves. ourselves. Yes. Uh, oh, and she, she has something odd in that book, too. Um, I asked her about it, and she said, because I'd spent pages and pages having my main character, Greta Wells, sort of wake up in this new world and keep being surprised by it. She said, no, Andy, they wake up, and they say, oh, it's 1918. What do I do now? You have to get it over with quickly so that we can enjoy it. Because Alice, she falls down the rabbit hole, and she stops wondering where she is. She just says, oh, I want to get in that garden. And they give her a purpose. And so I, I took her advice. Uh, that was advice well given and taken. I, so I, describe to, to our listeners, uh, we have our character, Greta Wells. She's in 1985, she's not happy, and she seeks an unconventional therapy, or it is thrust upon her. Yeah, she's she's at a, a lifetime low. She's had to, her her twin brother Felix, who you just heard about, is has died of AIDS. That's part of why I picked 1985 because it was a, a plague year, much in the way 1918 was. And her lover, of many years, has left her, and and I admit I I was looking for a a device to send her to these other times. And so I looked at a lot of different possibilities. And I don't know, 
fire or, you know, sleep seemed natural. But then I also wanted it to connect with her as a character. So I did some reading and realized that that something like the electroconvulsive therapy, it's called now, would throw the brain into a seizure and would be, surely it doesn't send you to an alternate universe, but it is radical. And and also that it's existed for over a hundred years, and so I could have it occur in every one of the worlds that she visits and have it seem sort of sad that a woman would have to go through that, but that interesting that it would open some new door for her. You set the tone of this so perfectly with the first sentence, the impossible happens once to each of us. And I think that that gives it that kind of fairy tale tone. And you keep that tone through the whole book. It's really remarkable. There are so many sentences in this book where you just want to stop and underline them and, you know, send them to your friends in email or something because they're just so fraught with emotion and thought provoking. And I'm wondering if once you got yourself into this kind of mood, the mood of this book, if that stirred up the prose in you and just like it just all started just dropping out. It seems like once you got in the groove of this book, you must really been having fun. Uh, it was. It was really fun. Um, and I, I will say is it's always true of my books and I think of a lot of writers that the very first page is one of the last things we write because in a way, you don't know what you've made until you've finished it. And it wasn't until I finished it that I that I realized that I wanted to signal to the reader from the very beginning that it was going to be like a fairy tale so that anything that happened, they would be up for. And that then allowed me to go through in revisions and just keep and highlight all of the sort of moment and get to repeat moments. There's a lot of things that people say that are repeated in different worlds with slightly different meanings. And I really got to enjoy myself, especially writing the end. I don't know why that's always my favorite part, because you feel it's just downhill. Like once you've done the hard work of making the rest of the book, then you can lead the reader out in the way you want. And you can create what I think is the great thing about a book, especially books you read as a kid, that you put it down and if the writer's done their job, then for a little, like, 20 minutes, you kind of believe it really happened? Uh, well, that's true. That The best books, the way you remember reading a best book is pretty much equivalent to the way you might remember a vacation. So for me, this book was like a vacation in New York in 1918, 1941, and 1985. Well, good, yeah, <laughs> with the less pollution, maybe. <laughs> maybe yeah, less pollution. Lower, lower rents. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But one of the things, too, that interested me was that the conceit of these kind of different parallel worlds where each world gives the narrator a new perspective on her own life is analogous to the way the book itself, when we're immersed in the book, it's like a parallel world. That then, then when we emerge forth from it, it also gives us uh, – new perspective on our old life. And I thought that was an interesting, if in a book of echoes, that was yet another echo. And I thought nicely handled. That is great to hear. One would hope that that is the purpose of fiction. There is another great book that came out a couple of months ago by Kate Atkinson called Life After Life, mm-hmm. which is about sort of the forking paths of a woman's life and her different choices that I was delighted to see that there's another writer who was, um, the books aren't similar in any way, except that we're we're battling with the same 
particular demons about the way your life could have gone. And maybe there's something about this moment, or maybe she and I are the same age. But I know that that was the book I was longing to have on my shelf, was the one that would give me maybe some kind of hope that life could have gone all kinds of ways, but it is possible that I am living in one of the best of them. Well, too, I think these are both books that are really concerned with when you get right down to it, no matter what else we have in this world, clothes, money, whatever, what we cannot change, what we cannot buy any more of is time. And I think that the the in, your focus on time in this book is really interesting because she, in a sense, gets more time to her life. I, I guess that's true. I mean, again, it is to me, I look at this book, it is so clear that that is what I'm longing for in my own life. And so I gave it to a character to get to redo a lot of the moments that either she got wrong or she could, or maybe she got right and she has to decide whether she wants to do the same thing again um, with people who are lost forever. If you got them back, what would they be like? Because a lot of the book also is um, in each of these worlds, there is something lost and gained. You know, there is something pleasant and unpleasant. Um, Because when I thought back on different periods of time, it was hard for me to come up with one where everything would be on the nose for everybody. No, and I think that's one of the pleasures of reading this book is that every life, every scene has a give and take. And it seems very nice. It seems almost uh, mathematically worked out in a sense, the the way that you balance this. And I, I have to ask, did you write this thing from beginning to end? I... Uh, <laughs> um, I will say I, I when I first started off, I long ago writing books, I would plot the whole thing out intricately, and I realized if I did that, then there's a certain point where your characters are then on a forced sort of death march to the end, and it's it, it loses something natural. And so for this book, I really went in without much idea of what was going to happen, which has its own problem, which is that you have no structure. But you have some authenticity to what you're writing. So I, I, I think I will post online at some point the giant corkboard I made at one point with pushpins, string, index cards, and little colored sticky notes to, to try to chart everything in the book. And by looking at it all in one view, to try to make sure that everything echoed properly hopefully without the reader sensing too much effort on my part. But I moved scenes around and put things in different places. It, it seems, I have to say, the reading experience is seamless. You don't, there's uh, no... It's great to hear that. <laughs> there's, there's no effort that ever shows. It all seems like that's the way it was meant to be. And I think that's an interesting effect of what you're writing about, since what you're writing about is, yes, these, this is the way these things were meant to be. This whole book is like a, a hall of mirrors. But I, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it is, you know, that's the way I built it. It's the way I wanted it to seem. I mean, I think if you pick up a book, you want to feel like you're in good hands and that the person is in control and that it is inevitable by the time you get to the end, even though probably the ending will surprise some people. Um, but it will also at the same time hopefully feel like everything was always going that way. Well, too, now when you set up a novel like this where you've got the same set of characters in 
three different times. You've created for yourself a fairly significant problem in that you've got, uh, <clears throat> even though you've kept your character cast small, they're also simultaneously large. It's you've tripled it effectively. <laughs> that is, that's what I kept telling people. They said, "Well, what's your book?" I was like, "I think I only have like five main characters, but there's it's really fifteen. They're and they're really subtly different um, now." Some of them, I admit, I do away with, and I had to get rid of complications such as parents or extra. I got rid of lots of extra people who used to be in the book and other people at other timelines because I really wanted to focus on the very small way in which these characters were different. And and two, you made a, a big choice, I think, at the beginning by keeping just one percipient through the whole thing because you could have written it from... The three there are, are essentially three Gretas in this book, but we are only privy to one perspective. Right. Well, because the idea is that when she say wakes up in 1918 in this other body, this other world, the uh, the consciousness of the woman who was there, this other Greta, she moves to another world to take over and have another body, and and when Greta gets back to her own world in 1985, she realizes that someone else has been in her body messing with things because they each have this idea of what would make this world perfect and they each are slightly different and they keep sort of changing things in each other's lives and 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 so it is true you could have three different novels three different Greta's experiences of what's going on and their frustrations with these their alternate versions of themselves which are really just sort of aspects of the same personality it's really interesting too and this creates sort of some great moments where she sees a photograph of herself, but it's not her. Right. She knows she couldn't have been there. She was at some other time. But how baffling. Now, I mean, I have to say, I, since as an identical twin, I have the experience of looking at a photograph and thinking, is it me? And what a weird... It's a, it is weird for me to realize, I don't know. I have no idea if that's me or not. But... And I don't have a memory of it. So how can you... That's the moment where she sort of says, what is... Uh, one, uh, one of the questions of the book, like, what is the... Is there an essential self? And why can't a photograph capture that? And how do we... How do we know who we really are? And who are we? You know, like if, if you, you black out drunk and do all these crazy things and text people the next day, was it you who did it? Or who is that? That's an interesting question, too, that you raised right from the beginning because when she begins to seek the the treatment, and this is something that comes up from anybody who ever gets prescribed drugs for a psychiatric or uh, psychological problem, if I start taking these, am I no longer myself? I mean, people always get frustrated with friends who go off their meds, but you understand why because they tell you I'm not. I'm not myself. I miss myself, even with all the dangers that came with it. Of course, they really should stay on their meds. But, you know, and even, you know, I've I've certainly been depressed, and I recognize being someone else during that period and having to almost write a note to yourself saying, it's only going to last two weeks. Just eat a lot of pizza. You'll be fine. But who is it who is telling you that? It's some other part of you talking to you saying, You'll be fine. But whoever is inside the body then doesn't believe it. But uh, that pizza sounds good. <laughs> That's my only solution. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Uh, one of the things I think that works so well in this is uh, 
the the theme of identity in this book. This is that's a big, huge, honking question that looms over every page. Who she is because. She's herself, but she's in another person's life. Is she that person? How much of that person's uh, morals, uh, drives does she share? And she's also a twin. Uh, Felix is her twin brother. So, And you're a twin. So talk about just the question of identity in this book and how much your experience as a twin informed this creation of essentially triplets who are spread across different times. Well, it's interesting. I haven't. I haven't thought too much about it. my twinship does that, but I do know that I have the unique experience of having someone identical to me. And we are also, our personalities are incredibly similar, who have taken slightly different life paths, although we do live right next to each other and share a backyard. It's not wildly different. But, you know, he's, for instance, he's a parent. He has two kids, and I don't have kids. And I get to see, in a way, what I be like, what my life would be like with kids. And he gets to see, I don't know, what my life, what he sees about it. But I I think with kids in particular, and that's a moment Greta has. She wakes up in 1941 and finds out she's a mom. I think a lot of women wake up one day and and find out they're a mom. And, and you know, years go by, they look and their, their house is littered with toys and peanut butter jars. And um, they're watching another Curious George episode and they think, is this me? <laughs> this is I used to go out dancing, you know. Is who is the person who is leading this life? Um, and maybe it's maybe they're relieved, you know, that they're not the one they were before. Early and often, your characters ask one another the question: Is this the person you dreamed of being when you were a little child? And I think that's such an interesting question, and that's one of the things this book does, is it interrogates the reader. This is a book that, even as it's telling a story, it's asking the reader a lot of questions. I thank you. I, w- I would hope so. I mean, I hope it suddenly does that, and that people, that a reader would leave, you know, sort of, because I think it is something that I ask myself. I will admit that the scene at the beginning of the book where Felix confronts a really angry and unlikable woman who's yelling at them on the street. And he says to her, Madam, is when you were a little girl, is, is this the woman you dreamed of becoming, this sort of shrieking woman? That's something I actually said <laughs> to a terrible person in New York. And I thought it was a really awful thing to say to someone, but, sh- but it certainly silenced her. Um, it's awful because it's awful for anyone to have to consider that day to day like are you all the choices and you've become not and by the person it's not the things you have or the position you have or or anything like that it means like literally who you are day to day are you a like a bitter angry ceo who's making terrible choices is that really as a boy what the plan was i mean if the plan was money was there another plan to to be a kind of decent human being ever? <laughs> Surely Sesame Street taught us that. You would hope. You know, it, one of the things you do spectacularly well is create these three different time periods. And as sad as it is that 1985 is a historical time period, mm. it is. And I, the book is short. It's, you know, it's under 300 pages, but you give us these rich swaths of history without giving us overloading us with details. And I'm wondering... 
how much research you did, um, how much time you walked around the places where this, the book is set, and how much stuff you had to like throw away. I, I had the great luxury of having a fellowship at the New York Public Library for almost a year where you literally they gave they give a bunch of artists um, offices in the library and access to all the stacks and the departments um, in the main library with the lines out front. So I had the best access in the world to all the historical documents and I lived well I placed the novel a block away from where I was renting an apartment in the West Village because I fell in love with that particular little alley. And, um, but I think I'd learned from my other, because in Max Tivoli and Story of a Marriage, I did lots of research for. And what I learned the hard way was that it takes the tiniest bit of information to bring that historical moment to life. And actually, if you go on and on showing off all the research, it makes it look like you're kind of like a know-it-all kid who actually just learned that on Google. And my rule for myself was I wanted to learn things that you couldn't Google. So I read old pamphlets and people's memories of walking through Greenwich Village in 1917, 18. And I read the Navy published a, a, a guide to New York for, for soldiers on shore leave in the 40s and those kind of things, those little details. And instead of... Um, you know, because Greta actually wouldn't know the history. She's showing up for the first time. So she she's looking around, and the subways are all different, and the coins are different. So she's more like a someone in an alien world than someone in a historical moment they're familiar with. Yeah, you do a great job. I didn't think about that, but you do do a good job. It's It's very much what we experience in here is what science fiction writers call world building. World building, yeah. Yeah. It, it it rocks for that because you give us, as you say, the the narrator who's never been there before has every uh, reason to look around in wonder. And that's one of the things that's really fun about this book is you really do give us a sense of wonder even in times that are really tragic and terrible. I mean, uh, and so I'd like you to talk about, for example, recreating the world of the 1918 plague. It was, well, part of it was by reading the newspaper, which is which is tough. It's not really history. It's an Arizona fantasy about itself, the newspaper. And it's it's all the terrors are overblown and all the comforts are overblown too. And I I understood that it was a really horrible time. It was worse in in some areas more than it was really terrible in San Francisco. Um but I th- and, of course, tons of people died, but it was also a strange, and it was a terrible war going on, but it was an odd moment. I was discovering and reading people's memories of freedom. Heaven knows why. Um, especially for women who, they didn't have the vote, but somehow, maybe because men were gone, maybe because there was a sort of reaction, generational reaction to the 19th century, corsets were disappearing, they were eating exotic food like spaghetti, it was a wild bohemian thing to have. It's all anyone wanted to have was this crazy spaghetti. Um, of course, ragtime, which was like no other music that had come along. Um, I, I realized that it seemed kind of like a hoot, even though it was a time of... They had no idea how flu was spread. You were not supposed to be endorsed with other people or share bottles or anything, and people wore masks. In San Francisco, it was the law. You had to wear a gauze mask at all times. And so, and in New York, it was not the law, but it was common. 
and you look at those old photographs of baseball games being played with gauze masks or court being held outdoors with gauze masks. I didn't get to put that stuff in. Again, it was the sort of things that would just cry out that I had done research rather than something the character would actually see. But I also looked at the obituaries and saw every day, pneumonia, 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 you know, flu, flu, flu. And it reminded me of the 80s when you would look in the obituaries and you would see pneumonia, pneumonia, pneumonia. You know you do have some fabulous characters in here, and that's one of the things that makes this book uh, so wonderful to read is we always, no matter who we're with or who's with Greta, we really like them. So I'd like you to talk about creating this small but great cast of characters. Ruth, who is her aunt, is kind of her confidant. And it's nice that she has somebody she can kind of tell what's happening. I, I mean, I think it's classic in stories like this for them to have one Confidant, like Quantum Leap, doesn't he have the the, the sort of yeah the the hologram right the hologram yeah. guy I yeah. forget what his name is you have to have someone to 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 confide in and it, it I think for for Ruth for some reason she showed up in the very early early on in writing this and every time I put her in a scene I had a great time because she's she's the one person who doesn't change from one time to the next she's completely herself and. Uh, stubborn and um, uh, lively and hard-headed and mean sometimes. But um, and she was, I think when you find a character like that, you just put them in as often as you can because they make everything alive. And her brother, his temperament is different in different time periods. and And that made him really interesting for me. Well, I thought you did a great job. I mean, one of the things that you can get out of reading this book, it's a pocket history of being a gay man in America. And, I, right. I guess it is. Yeah. And, and I think it's really well handled in that regard. I think that you do a great job of talking about, you know, things, the way things look from within, even though she's not within. She has a, a sense of who he is, and we have a sense of who he is. And I think that's, uh, so talk about creating Felix in the various situations that he finds himself in. And also, I love the way that you echo the characters and weave them in and out so that somebody has different, like, they're tweaked differently in each period. Well, that I that was one of the challenges when I when I decided to put her brother in there, I thought, well, for one thing, you know, he's dead in 1985. That's part of being a gay man in 1985 for a lot of them. And then I had to think back. I did some research, but, you know, a lot of stuff with history and characters, you just have to take a leap of faith that your imagination will get it right, more than basing it on a historical character, that you can imagine it right. Um, because it was possible to be a gay man in 1918 in New York City, but you really had to have a lot of money. Um, and I think we have a wildly strong sense of self. And it probably would be sad because no one knew what that was. But I, I read reports of in Greenwich Village of, um, you know, there were men and women in tea shops just who would just hang out and a lot of intellectuals but a lot were homosexuals and it was it was there it was you know it was also really nice too to see a book that from the beginning kind of centers on a brother-sister relationship rather than you know star-crossed lovers who meet and have a happy ending 
I, which is, you know, really common. I, I really like the the dynamic between Greta and Felix. I thought that was an interesting choice for you to make. Good. Well, I think it's because for me, my brother is. I take him completely for granted that he's around because there's. I have a built-in pal my whole life. Something almost nobody else has. They have siblings, but it apparently doesn't seem to go as well as it does for me and my brother. Um, and. I know that if I ever lost him, that would be the great tragedy for me. No offense to everyone, anyone else I love in my life, but I'm used to having him around always. And once he's gone, then I'll, I'll be alone for the first time in the world. And I'll know what everyone else feels like. But, and so that made it into the book, that that would be something she would suffer and wouldn't be able to get over. And the idea that she could go to another world where he was back again um, appealed to me a lot. And then I realized that he might not be the same. Well, that was one of the things that was I thought you handled really well was that at one point you say that when, when we bring the dead back, they come, they come back with the things we really didn't notice the first time around because we didn't want to notice them. Yeah, the things we didn't love about them. Yeah, <laughs> they hang up the phone without saying I love you. Yeah. One of the things that you talk about is how human pain is real when you when you miss somebody, how that's like a real kind of pain. I mean, and actually I think they've determined now that uh, the same parts of the brain fire off when you're experiencing kind of depression or when you're sad about something. It's just like you know, somebody's poking you with a knife. Again, science is always catching up with the arts, isn't it? <laughs> it yeah. is. That is interesting. So talk about discussing the idea of pain in this book, because there's a lot of people who are in varying kinds of pain, and they cope with it in different ways. Uh, Felix sometimes holds it in. Sometimes he's demonstrative. Ruth is always demonstrative. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's part of it for me. I'm starting to get to the phase of my life in my 40s where I see people around me losing things they've built or people they love or parents or grandparents and those things. And I watch a variety of pain and how people get through it. You're right. Anger. It's a lot of denial, a lot of grief, a lot of wondering whether, I think Greta says this at one thing, whether you get to be sad when sad things happen, whether that's actually a really normal response is to scream all the time. If it's that bad, that's not crazy, but it seems crazy. And whether you can ever really help people through it, because Greta is trying to fix these worlds in a way, in whatever way she thinks. And it's, of course, a very manipulative, bossy thing to do, to try to fix other people's lives the way you think they should go. And of course, they're also trying to fix them. So you have, uh, as a writer, you had three different characters, this, three versions of the same character who are all trying to tweeze one another's lives into something that they thought more appropriate. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun as a reader to experience that and see, you know, as we get to know um, these other credits. And, and I'd like to talk about uh, uh, characterization in absentia, in that. We get to know who the other Gretas are, but not because we see them. We just see their, you know, comet dust trails. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, you never, of course, can never meet the other versions of her. You can see the evidence of them. And I was, it's, it's good to hear. I was hoping that they would 
come across that the 1941 one is a little more buttoned up and and in love with one person and that there's the 1918 Greta who's perhaps too freewheeling and unhinged in love with someone else entirely neither of them is really seems aware of Felix's inner life because it just isn't they're not quite tuned into that yet from their times so everyone's trying to shift things towards a different person and none of them are really they're not wrong but they can't all do it <laughs> well it's also nice too because uh, the 1985 setting as you say it gives the it puts in additional at no cost to you <laughs> it puts the the reader not two in. but three time periods folks <laughs> yeah. well as a, as readers here in in 2113 we can look back and see how things have changed since 1985 and we can reflect that you know where things start in 1918 and where they end up in 1985 there are still a further trajectories that are out beyond the experience of the book that but that we can intuit and that creates for us as readers an interesting uh, level of involvement in the book. It's a, a level of involvement that's with the book that's not supported by any text. Uh, right. All this extra stuff that you get from just the sort of the, the echoes of the book. And well, for me, I also know that like maybe there is a pleasure for a reader in knowing not how things turn out because things never turn out. They're still going. Mm -hmm. Um, but knowing that we ourselves are in some sense the, a later Greta who can look back on her world and know that she's, she can't see how, what's really important in that time period. For one thing, we know that, you know, that AIDS was, is not cured, but that there's a lot of treatment, so it's, it's not quite you know, the, the horror that it was back then, and so there's a little enough distance. We know... Things get worse in terms of war, but also better in terms of particular ones. She's worried about nuclear war. You know, we don't think about the USSR in the same way um, or Ronald Reagan. And and in fact, she herself wonders why she is the the last Greta, why there can't be one even further in the future who can go back and tell everyone else things get better, why she has to carry that burden. Well, also, too, and I think there's a great moment when she sees somebody else, I think another woman, on the street, and she intuits that this woman is as well experiencing the same kind of quantum uh, lives. And I think that that's a, that's a really great moment, again, for us, the readers. Oh, I'm so glad. I used to, I, I insisted on keeping that sort of character in the corner of the eye in the book that it would really, you would have to read it twice to see her, that she's... She's she's throughout the book, mm -hmm. and I had a draft where that she actually talks with her, but I had to get rid of it. It was just too distracting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you made the right decision because one of the things that a book like this thrives on discovery as readers, it's a puzzle, and it's nice to put it together. So if the, the puzzle's too preassembled or the pieces are too easy, it's not quite as fun. I think that that's what my editor said. She was like, we don't need this at all. This is implied in what's going on. And that there is something true. As a writer, you have to calculate things so that the reader puts things together just before you put them together. Because you want the reader wants to feel smart and to feel part of it. And if you if it's right, if it's preassembled, then it looks 
clever, but it doesn't actually engage the reader's mind in the same way. I like that. I think that's a really great observation <laughs> because this book never feels clever in the sense that you mean where it's too smart for its own good or it's preassembled. It's a book that you explore. Now, a lot of this, the heavy lifting here, is done by the pros. I mean, there, as I said, there's a practically a, a page does not go by where there's not some great sentence, you know, if only we just loved who we're supposed to love, um, and life's so unlikely, save it for a better occasion. At one point, she's talking about something, and she says, uh, it's uh, Ruth. She wants to tell Ruth to uh, save the champ some champagne for a better occasion, but you can't Marry such hopes, for they won't be faithful to you. <laughs> did enjoy writing that. So that's what Ruth was so good for. She yeah. could say things that are just outrageous, said out loud. Those were, yeah, those were all just great fun to invent. And I, I, none of them came ahead of time. They were just what the characters were saying to each other. But I think in editing them, I kept those particular ones because you want to keep, once you write the book, you look back, you realize what you've made, and you realize that if you just highlight certain parts, that the tone will be one particular piece, that the book will feel the same throughout what you said at the beginning. Yeah. And I, I think it sounds so corny, but I wanted one that was hopeful. Mm-hmm. This is, this I specifically wanted to write a book like, I mean, it, I can write sad. I've written sad before, and I just wanted to not do that. This this book is, I think, uh a fine example of a, in a sense, it's kind of a romance, but I think in the larger sense of, you know, the William Wordsworth and, and Byron Keats and Shelley, that as vision of romance is a larger embrace of the life of the world. I am happy to hear that. I will wear that as a badge. <laughs> I was, there was, there at, uh, in a brief um, discussion in the New York Times about this book, they referred to me as an eloquent softy, and I thought... They totally nailed it on that one. Yeah. Well, that I I think that's that is a good sum summation of it, and it has a kind of novel has an interesting shape when we read it, and I, and I'm wondering, did that happen beforehand, or did you kind of, I mean, in terms of the way the plots work, the characters work, and the prose afterwards, we feel like it's it's just got a kind of a certain shape to it. Did was that something that you? carved out afterwards or, you know, as a terms of revision or did that, did this mostly just flow from the tip of your pen while you were uh, writing on legal pads with a fountain pen? I mean, I would like to give the impression that I did the second one, (laughs) that it came like a fever dream and I just wrote it down before anyone interrupted. It's both. One was that I watched the shape that I was making when I wrote it and I didn't know quite what would happen, which is a terrifying thing to do, honestly. Um, And then I carefully made that shape more distinct of the book and made it sort of have a a looping rhythm to it. And there's structures underneath it that I'm not even going to tell you. They're incredibly complicated to make it feel like a piece of music, hopefully, that there's something going on um, and that characters return in a certain order and that there's objects that return and that there's moments I mean the moment that I'm that I always love in a book and I like when I write like this but also when I read when when the author is confident enough that they kind of 
take off on a paragraph or two of a sort of flight of fancy. And there's so much going on in this book that there's few places you really get to do that, but a couple times I got to. And for me, those are my favorite parts. Well, I really think, too, I agree with you. The The vision of this as a piece of music, it does seem very finely orchestrated. And I think some of that, too, came from when you set yourself up with a, this premise. I mean, as readers, we can immediately get the premise. Oh, she's going to go from A to B to C. Right. Got it in one. I can go with that because, you know, not going to spend too long anywhere. I like everywhere I'm going. It's all going to change each time. Rocking. Let's go. And I think that... That kind of uh, premise, once you get that going, one of the things that informs that premise and is very important to get that you do a really good job at is the rules. This comes in in science fiction. This is really important. I it think, is important. And I think you do a great job of taking that science piece of the science fictional toolkit and putting it in this book, but it doesn't seem like science fiction. So talk about creating the rules for yourself. Well, so I had to create, I had to re, when I rev, revised this book, I had to really think about whether I'd gotten the rules right or not, or whether I had broken them, and if I did, what I, how I wanted to change it. So I had to impose some more structure on it and try to make it clear early on. Well, because like a piece of music, I think you want, if you have three themes, you want to lay them down so the listener has got them in their brain, and then you, it's a variation from there, from there on. That's the fun of it, is for the mind to hear variations, and here, at some point, it goes into chaos, and then you start to recognize it coming out of that and then there's resolution it's philip glass in words i listened to a lot of <laughs> philip glass when i wrote this i admit it <laughs> he's a good good guy for that you know also too the feeling of this as a fairy tale and i think this is really interesting that here in the 21st century where we're surrounded by science and we have a really firm understanding that the world out there really is real and it's composed of particles and we might not quite understand them and but uh, that we're so that we've seen a real renaissance of fairy tales for adults. Uh, originally, the Hans Christian Andersen and the G Brothers Grimm were writing kind of uh, warning stories. Mm -hmm. um, go out at night alone. Guess what? The big bad wolf's going to eat you. That's probably not a good idea. So here's the story. There's the body. Don't do that. Uh, the stories that we, the fairy tales that we get now are of a different nature, and I think it, it's captured in that first line again, that the impossible can happen. And I think that your fairy tale and, and some of the others we've seen uh, suggest that in spite of all the science we're surrounded by, that there's still a lot we do not know. Well, I, I mean, I'm the child of two scientists, um, of chemists, and I grew up with, they imparted to me with, a kind of sense of wonder. Like they, I don't know about all scientists, but my parents were perfectly happy to say, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know the answer. Maybe you're the one who's going to find out someday, you know, that they would, that there were things unknown and that was exciting because otherwise they wouldn't have a job. And I was the era of Carl Sagan on television, right, who was a man who was had boundless optimism for the wonders of of a world that he he admitted could not be understood completely, although he he was determined not to make it a world of demons and spirits, but one like he really believed in extraterrestrials. You know, he was all behind that, and so for me, like there's the theory, the many worlds theory, um, 
which is accepted by a lot of scientists, simply because the math works out, I guess, that if, you know, an atom, if it can go to the right or the left, that the universe splits apart and two universes now exist this where it went to the right and the left so that you know when sort of a quantum wave collapses we only see one of them but maybe every possible way it could have gone exists and that that satisfies a lot of scientists mathematically and that informed this book in a lot of ways and a lot of alternate universe fictions but I also allowed myself to 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 start with that idea and then go off on on my own way. I'm not sure it sticks with the heart science very, very well. Um, but it sticks I, with the heart science. Yeah, it and does. That's, that makes it, I think, as as uh, believable as hard science would in many ways more so. Well, there was I, something on my Twitter feed today before I came here. There was, I, I can't even tell you what quote it was. Someone was retweeting it. It said, we know the heart, the world is dark and cruel and terrible, but must every novel remind us of that all the time these days? And, and I thought, okay, good. There's someone who wants something else. Uh, are you working on a new novel? Yeah, I am. I always vow to have be deep into a new novel when a book comes out. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Or what what sort of novel? Are we getting another fairy tale? It, not, in the, not in this specific way. I seem to be alternating between realistic books and more magical books, but it's... um. I vowed to my friend Daniel that I would write a book set in the present day because he was tip- sick of seeing me in libraries all the time. So it's set in the present day in San Francisco over the course of one day. Uh, we're in James Joyce Ulysses territory there. I, I know. I considered that. <laughs> I don't think it'll be anywhere close. <laughs> well, it'll be it, its own thing. We move at a much faster pace now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been speaking with Andrew Sean Greer. His new book is The Impossible Lives of Greta Wells. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Thank you. That was a delight. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.